Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome. It's it's a whole new crew of new voices today. And we have Miranda Spint leading the way. And Miranda, this is going to be the first opportunity for a lot of our listeners to, to meet you. Um, in addition to being a Young Voices contributor, tell us just a little bit about yourself and who you are and what you do. Sure. Thank you so much for having me on, Brian. So I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I am a policy associate at the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Very good. And what a topic we have to discuss today. I, I haven't heard people talk about the flat tax much lately, but you have a wonderful article in Madison.com about how Wisconsin can still be progressive with a flat tax. And and first of all, I'm going to ask, um, I, I take it to Wisconsin is probably a fairly progressive state. Is that is that correct? I would say we're a purple state for sure. Okay. Good enough. So, what's uh, what's the impetus behind um, someone promoting a flat tax? Um, who who favors it? Who pushes back against it? And what are the benefits that that it could bring uh, by being implemented? Sure. So, there's kind of two different conversations surrounding the flat tax. So, you have typically Republicans, conservatives who support it, saying that um, by bringing down the higher um, income rates that we would have more of a business um, benefit in our state that would boost the economy and that would be beneficial for job creation and all that kind of stuff. And then on the more Democrat liberal side, you have opponents saying that it's just a big tax cut for the rich. So the proposal that's in Wisconsin right now is actually, it would bring down the highest income rate from 7.65% all the way down to 3.25%. And that's obviously sounds really scary. That would have an estimated $5 billion loss in revenue over the next few years when that would theoretically be implemented. Um, And I think what I'm trying to do with my piece here is just say that it isn't really one or the other. You don't have to have, you don't have to sacrifice um, revenues and the support that those revenues provide through state services for poor and middle income, poor and middle income um, earners. Um, You don't have to sacrifice that in order to receive those business benefits. Interesting. Uh, now, I've heard, and I don't know if you subscribe to this, but I've, I've heard that cutting tax rates actually can incentivize people to start businesses, to expand existing businesses and so forth. In other words, by by reducing tax rates, you actually can collect more revenue because people are more willing to invest if they know that there's a better chance that they are going to be keeping more of what they've earned. Absolutely. And an interesting thing about the income tax is that a lot of there's a certain type of business that actually um, pays income taxes rather than typical business or corporate taxes. So by bringing down the income tax, that actually encourages more of those smaller businesses who um, who pay the income tax to come to your state in that sort of sense. Yeah. All right. So who is behind the movement toward a flat tax? I, I, I'm not trying to put blame here, but I'm always curious, you know, when someone proposes a particular policy, I like to, well, who, okay, who's backing that? Mm-hmm. So, um, it's definitely cons- um, conservatives, Republicans. So it was um, Senator Devin Lemahieu in Wisconsin who proposed this, and it's part of our um, upcoming budget debate. We're going through our biannual budget negotiations currently, um, and that was proposed. So it's definitely a movement on that side, and we've seen this happening. There's been more states. There's been this past year. Um, more states moving towards the flat tax and moving in that direction. And I think this is just kind of hopping on that bandwagon. We don't want to be left behind in a sense, you know, as more states do the more business friendly flat tax for income taxes, that's going to cause a problem for us in Wisconsin. Um, Our 
highest income tax rate of 7.65% is actually pretty high compared to most other states. So um, that'll be problematic for us um, as more states um, move in the flat tax direction. And this is something that um, it likely won't pass. We do have a Democratic governor, um, but I think this is just trying to start that conversation and um, start building up support and um, making, making hopefully making this a possibility in Wisconsin. Miranda, one of the reasons I'm not a, an accountant is because I'm a simple guy. My mind works very simply. Um, when I hear flat tax, the first word that comes to mind is I think, okay, well, that sounds pretty fair. Everybody's paying the same rate. If you make a lot of money, you pay the same rate as the person who makes less money. Um, I, I know that there's pushback against that and people who say that it wouldn't be fair. Is that because of the graduated nature of, of Wisconsin's current tax system? In other words, is it more important to to some to, to really soak the rich? They shouldn't be paying their fair share. They should be paying more than what other people are paying? That is definitely the ideological opposition to the flat tax, is exactly what you described. So flat taxes are technically a regressive tax, which just means that it's technically more harmful towards lower income individuals because um, losing five cents on each dollar is more significant when you make less money. So that's, that is the big opposition for the flat tax. And what I talk about um, in my piece here is that while the income tax itself would be regressive, that it's really only one piece of the puzzle in our overall tax code in Wisconsin. So a lot of states who have shifted to flat taxes or even having no income tax, they rely a lot on the sales tax. And that can be a great way to um, essentially have a fair share of taxes being paid by the rich. So ideally, if you have more disposable income and you're spending more of that income on items, you would be taxed on those items and that is, um, you'd be being taxed more essentially. So that's kind of what I'm proposing here. And um, so it's not just moving to the sales tax, but there's also things in Wisconsin that are excluded from the sales tax that could be included to create even more of that fair share um, from the wealthy who are paying those taxes. So some of those items include um, auto and travel clubs or educational events. And those are things that we can include in the flat tax that um, right now are mostly purchased by higher income individuals. So that's kind of a way to, one of the ways that I propose in this piece to um, sort of balance that out between the business benefits that come from a flat tax, but then um, there are ways to make sure that we are being fair in the way that we're taxing people. Something you point out that I, I really strongly resonate with is the idea that uh, a sales tax, you know, that's that's one of the few taxes you actually have control over uh, because it's based on consumption. If you don't want to be taxed as much, don't spend as much. Now, mm -hmm. I have to wonder, though, you, you mentioned also that Wisconsin has one of the lowest state sales taxes. Um, are there things Correct. that are exempted, for instance, groceries and things like that? Do, do they exempt certain things from the state sales tax? Absolutely. Groceries are one of the things that are exempt and other things that are considered essential. And I think that's important. Obviously, you don't want, if we're going to be raising the sales tax, even by a few percentage points, it's going to make those things so much harder for people to afford, especially for low income who need those things. I mean, everybody needs those, but you obviously, um, you want to make sure that people have access. So those things would stay exempt. The things that I'm proposing to include are things that really are um, would only be paid for or bought by the rich or wealthier people. So those with more disposable income. So yes, those that's very important to mention that um, there are things exempt from the sales tax that should stay exempt for sure. You know, Wisconsin's had a pretty good reputation um, tax-wise as being a good place for, for business. And I'm, I'm thinking back probably about a decade ago uh, when Illinois 
raised its uh, its taxes, particularly on businesses, very, very high. And if I remember correctly, there were a number of businesses that said, okay, we're out of here. And if I'm if I'm not mistaken, a good portion of them actually relocated to Wisconsin because uh, the, the tax system there was was much easier to work with and did not demand as much of them. I'm, does, does that comport with what you understand as well? Yeah, definitely. Wisconsin does have a good history of being business friendly. And I think this is just a next step in making sure that that's, that stays the case. Um, right now, only one of all of our surrounding neighboring states have a flat tax or have a plan to implement a flat tax. And as that becomes more of a trend in more states across the country, that's going to be something that while we currently are considered very business friendly, if we want to stay that way, we should probably, we, this is something that we should seriously consider. Are there any particular special interest groups or lobbying groups that that are, are especially opposed to a flat tax? I'm just curious who that might be. Um, that's not something I've necessarily looked into. I mean, I a lot of the opposition really is coming, that I'm seeing is just concern for um, the the supposed loss in revenue, which would obviously could be um, supported by flat taxes or I'm sorry, sales taxes um, and the loss of revenue and this kind of scare tactic that that would mean a huge cut in state services that support um, low and middle income groups. And I think that, you know, that's while that's obviously a, a, um, a, a valid concern, um, we don't want that it's not true that that um, would absolutely be the case just with the flat tax alone, because there's other things that we can do to avoid those situations. So um, that's, um, yeah. So is it likely then that the Wisconsin legislature would be willing to implement something like this, but once it gets to the governor's desk, maybe maybe the governor's going to say no? Yes, we do have a Republican legislature right now. So it is likely that this will, that I'm sure that they will try to put this in here. And I'm sure that um, the governor will veto it. He does have line item veto in Wisconsin. So I'm sure that if this ends up in the in the legislative budget, that it will be vetoed. But hopefully, um, even if that doesn't happen, assuming that that does happen, at least this is um, starting a, a good conversation. And maybe sometime in the future, there's a friendlier governor who would consider this again down the road. Interesting. We're talking with uh, with um, Miranda Spint. She's a policy associate at the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, and she's also a Young Voices contributor. And uh, please tell us, Miranda, where can people follow you on social media? Where can they follow your work? Sure. So you can follow me on Twitter. My at is at Miranda underscore Spint. And we are back on Moving Forward with Young Voices. We'd like to welcome Jeremiah Ludwig to the program. He currently works as an independent housing policy researcher in Washington, D.C., as well as being a Young Voices contributor. In fact, Jeremiah, if you don't mind, tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Good morning, Brian. Uh, Thank you for the introduction there. Honestly, that's a good start just to understand what I do. I work independently developing research on mostly federal and state housing policy, and uh, I love to 
just study housing markets. I'm a bit of an economics nerd, and uh, it's what consumes per- virtually all of my time. Uh, but yeah, it's it's an interesting line of work. Well, the world needs economic nerds as well as other nerds who can help uh, take all the vast amounts of data and information out there and make it make sense for the rest of us. And and I see we have a really, uh, I think, a really interesting topic to talk about. Um, the FTC apparently is is considering a ban on non-compete agreements. And and I love the headline here that could keep pizza delivery guys shuttling pies for life. Talk to me about what a non-compete non-compete agreement is and where it would come into play. And then let's talk about why this this proposed FTC ban may cause more problems than it solves. Yeah. So a non-compete agreement is a clause in a labor contract where usually there's something that's going to be used in order to guarantee for an employer that their employees are not going to steal their clients and they're not going to undermine their business. Uh, Effectively, it comes into play when you're hired on for a company where you're expected to work with sensitive information and where you're going to have the company be making a major investment in you. Uh, They're going to include a a clause within the contract that stipulates that you're going to face a series of penalties if you take their clients or if you compete with them for for a certain number of years uh, within the industry after you stop working for them. Uh, They're usually pretty straightforward and penalties are usually not too severe since anything that's too severe, such as banning somebody from working in the field for say 10 years is going to be knocked down by courts pretty much immediately. Okay, um, now let's let's relate this to to some of the the downsides of those non compete clauses. Uh, I've worked in radio for many many years. I've seen non compete clauses. You know, depending on you know how uh, how big a person's contract is, and usually when they're up in six figures, you know, sometimes they'll say, okay, and you can't go to work for six months until you know after you've parted company with us. But talk to me about the pizza guy angle. You you actually have a, kind of a personal story to that. Yes, yes, I do. Uh, I will put in a disclaimer and note that I I was not the one who made the final decision on this title. I will admit that I would not still be a pizza guy if I had lost this one particular opportunity. However, this was a particularly great opportunity for me. Uh, You noted there that there are some downsides to having to deal with non-compete agreements and that they will lock you out of your career field for a while. And if you've built up a skill set that specializes in a single field, uh, losing access to your income can be a really huge problem and it can really undermine your ability to live comfortably. I will be the first to admit that they're very inconvenient. And it was something that I had to figure out firsthand. I was working in Southern Arizona, delivering pizzas, just trying to make my way in the United States. And I received an offer to go and work for a uh, IT technician company uh, as a subcontractor. And they offered me a great deal, much better wages. They're going to provide me with the insurance, the tools, and the training that I needed to learn how to be an IT technician. Um, But they were going to make it so that I couldn't work within the field for two years after leaving it, within the local market, at least for Southern Arizona. And while it wasn't a big deal for me at first, uh, a couple years into the job, well, not even that long, actually about eight months into the job, uh, I was up to speed enough and was skilled enough in my work that I started getting offers from people. And it was it was frustrating because I wasn't able to take an offer where they were going to give me a much higher wage and much better benefits because I didn't want to have to deal with this this giant fine that I was going to face if I if I undermined my uh 
my contractor's business. And it was particularly intimidating because there is space within some non-compete agreements where they can sue you for potentially lost business and potentially lost revenue. And I didn't even know what that meant. I was 20, 21, and I just decided not to deal with it at all. And it scared me away from pursuing some uh, potentially very lucrative opportunities when I was young. So you mentioned, you know, at the time, you know, had the FTC been saying, well, you know, maybe we should ban these non-compete clauses, that might have actually, you know, got you out of a pickle. But then, and this is what to me makes makes you a good economist. You you look beyond the immediate effect to see, well, well, what are what are some of the unseen aspects here? And one thing you point out is you never would have been trained as a technician in the first place without that non-compete clause. So it was kind of a blessing in disguise, wasn't it? Yes, exactly. And I honestly think it's about more than just being a good economist. I think it's just about being good at thinking about policy. It's easy for a person to get caught up in the the plight and the story of a single individual in the moment and then try and form policy around that. But to create policy that's going to be in place for decades, if not centuries in the future, you need to be thinking bigger than that. And obviously, when I was a tech worker, I was thinking as an individual. I was worried about where am I going to get my money for the next couple of years to pay the bills and provide for myself. Uh, but as an economist, I've learned to get outside that box and think about the incentives that come into play in driving people's behavior and their decisions in business environments and in markets. And I like that you put yourself in the shoes of your employer. And, and when it's explained from that perspective, it's like, well, he took a risk you know, in bringing you on board and training you and to, to make sure that he could recoup the costs of getting you up to speed you know, providing you the tools that you needed to, to be able to perform at your job, um, it, it does make sense. Now, normally I'd be like, oh, no, no compete, non-compete clauses are not a good idea. But from that perspective, it's like, no, if I were in, in the boss's shoes, I'd probably want a similar guarantee that, you know, I wasn't just training people for someone else. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's a particularly important to think about in the context of the trades right now. We have a fairly large labor deficit in a lot of different trade jobs, particularly in construction right now. Uh, some estimates put it as high as uh, 500,000 jobs short in construction across the board, which has major impacts in terms of just the, the cost of labor in the field and the cost of housing is a downstream effect, which is a big deal. Um, and it, it's important to make sure that we're we're encouraging people to go into the into the construction field and into the trades and making sure that they have uh, that employers have reason to hire employees and give them training that they need and give them opportunity. Uh, so kind of in that other angle, looking at it in a broader perspective for overall markets, uh, I think it's also a, a there's angles on the policy that need to be considered more carefully. So, where where does the momentum for this this push to ban non-compete clauses come from within the FTC? Um, is it just, I, I mean, is there is there a reason or some justification they offer for why, you know, this is something they would be considering? Yeah, there's a couple things that are driving this, as far as I can tell. One is it, this is a popular thing. Um, it's it, it fits well into popular narrative uh, on the topic of, of labor regulation that um, employers have a tendency to use labor law in order to better, uh, I guess, exploit their employees. And there's a certain amount of political momentum that can be built up around policies that are trying to strike down some of those labor laws. Um, but at the same time, they do have 
that they've done trying to evaluate what long-term impacts uh, they're going to be from uh, banning non-compete agreements. Because if you do ban non-compete agreements, you will make the market more competitive over the long term. You're going to make it so that labor can flow more easily. People can leave their jobs more comfortably. And employers have to compete much more carefully on price. They have to make sure that their, their wages that they're paying their employees are up to speed. Because if the the ongoing wage for that particular position is higher than they're actually offering, they can easily be underbid by their, their competition and they can lose their best employees. Um, and th that can be a really good thing for workers um, in, in some fields. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that are, there, there's a lot of comp uh, kind of quantitative analysis that they've done on that front, estimating that we're going to have some uh, economic growth that would come from this over the long term. Well, I, I appreciate the fact that you're, you're taking that that broader view of all the aspects that you can can anticipate about this kind of policy, and um, that's certainly better than the you know the the habit people sometimes have of well, here's the desired result, and that's all we're looking at, and you know the I think it's called the cobra effect. They they don't they don't necessarily see the unintended consequences they might be bringing. All right, we're talking with Jeremiah Ludwig. Jeremiah, Jeremiah tell me uh, where can people find your work? Where can they follow you on social media? Uh, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn if you're following any of my work. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter as well at Jeremiah under, underscore Ludwig. Um, uh, I will usually share whatever I'm working on in one of those two platforms, and you can follow it there. All right. Wonderful to visit with you. I hope we get to talk again soon. Likewise. It's a pleasure. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome a new Young Voices contributor. Her name is Sophia Hamilton. And Sophia, I'm going to ask you, if you would, just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, who you are and what you do. Hi, Brian. Happy to be here. Um, I'm a research associate at a DC think tank, and I specialize in housing and welfare policy. I'm also an alumna of the University of Miami. And I think most importantly, I was a Florida resident for almost 20 years. Well, I'm telling you, I think uh, I think Florida would be a wonderful place to be, especially this time of year, <laughs> as, as there's oh, still definitely. some lingering winter just about everywhere else. But somehow they, the Sunshine State seems to have got off a little easier. Talk to me about exactly. I definitely miss the weather. Talk to me about your article that you did for the uh, Orlando Sun Sentinel. Uh, school districts need a lesson on economics. Now, my wife is a public school teacher, and so when when I hear things about you know recruiting teachers and you know paying them a good salary or getting them to 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 stay at a, at a given school district, uh, that kind of strikes home. But uh, you have a wonderful article here about uh, a school district in in Florida that is is trying to to work on recruiting teachers from a housing standpoint. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, some school districts around the country, including two prominent ones in Florida, which are Hillsborough and Miami-Dade counties, have set forth some plans to provide housing for their teachers. And from the outset, this seems like a very generous proposal. But when you look into the details, I think there's something more sinister afoot. So teachers have been complaining for years about low wages. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. And thousands are finally taking action by leaving the industry. And um, recently at the start of the 2022-2023 school year, 
the Florida Education Association reported that there are about 10,000 vacancies um, for teachers wow. and support staff within the state. And I want to point out that's only counting for the vacancies that are advertised by schools. So there could definitely be more there and there definitely are. Um, so school districts are now at a point where they're being forced to address the fact that their teachers aren't making enough money to afford to live in their district and stay in that industry. So some districts have come to this solution of providing discounted housing that they manage for their teachers. And this helps to solve their issue of teachers leaving the industry in droves because they're now the teachers are now stuck in their jobs because their jobs are tied to their housing. Yeah, I was going to say, on the one hand, great, okay, this is this is making it possible for a teacher to, to teach, but should a, should another opportunity come along, suddenly they're, they're kind of tied down. So, I, I'm curious, how is this received by the teachers? I mean, are, are they seeing the results that they need in terms of recruiting teachers, or is, is, are there people who are thinking far enough ahead that they're, they're seeing some of the downsides of this? That's a good question. Um, really, none of these plans have come to fruition yet, especially uh-huh. in Florida. Um, I think California was one of the states that was more um, upfront with this plan. Um, and from the articles that I've read interviewing teachers, for the most part, they seem ecstatic because, you know, they can't afford the housing that they're in right now. And they're seeing this quick solution that they can go into. And it seems like a good idea that they can have this cheaper housing and they have a cheaper way to live. Um, but from the teachers that I've personally spoken to in my home state of Florida, um, they're they're a little mad about this proposition. You know, a lot of them would just like to have higher wages so that they can have that money in their pockets and choose to spend it the, how they want to. So um, I think it's a little bit early to tell in Florida how teachers are going to respond to it since these plans haven't gone into action yet. But from what I've heard, people aren't too happy about it. What is the major um, pushback or the major resistance that comes when when talk turns to raising teachers' salaries? Yeah, well, I mean, I think a lot of the issues coming from increasing salaries is people don't want to have those increased taxes. And I, I totally get that. I don't want to I don't want my taxes raised, especially in Florida, where the taxes are already low. People are going to be very hesitant to vote to raise their taxes to fund teacher salaries. Um, So I think that's the biggest pushback. But um, definitely, I think we've seen how teachers are having to use their own money and their own resources to fund their classrooms. And I think it is worth it to pay a little bit more in taxes and move around budgets so our kids can have a better education. Interesting. Now, I, I don't know um, where, where Florida stands. I'm seeing a lot of different states across the nation right now uh, grappling with the, the issue of school choice. And it takes a number of different forms. But uh, would competition within the, the education arena uh, do anything toward uh, raising the, the wages for teachers? You think that's a difficult question. You know, there's definitely a lot of school choice going on within the state of Florida, and, and we've seen that conversation going around um, the past couple of years. And I do think if private schools and charter schools were to have increased wages, that would pull a lot of teachers out of the public school system. But um, a lot of these schools have mandated wages um, that are set at the school district level by voters. So it's not really going to help um, immediately to push those wages up for public school teachers. 
Okay. I, you know, being kind of a free market kind of guy, um, I believe competition is is something that actually you know encourages higher performance, you know, greater uh, creation of value. And I, and and I may be naive for thinking this, but it, it feels like the the wages should follow those who are producing, and and the the better educators would would be earning better wages. But uh, maybe that's not something that that would be feasible within you know a public school system. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we've heard that conversation a lot around if teachers will get bonuses, if they have good test scores. But if you look at the real wages of the average Florida teacher, they've decreased from 1970 to 2021. If you adjust for inflation, they've decreased by over $9,000. So our teachers really are losing money by staying in this profession and they're not being awarded for their good work. Talk to me about what the the price of, for instance, real estate has done in in the meantime too. Since since we started this on on the topic of housing for for teachers, has uh, have the housing costs uh, steadily gone higher? Oh goodness, yes they have. Um, so I've like I said, I've been in Florida for over 20 years and the state's rapidly developed in those two decades, and it's brought a lot of great business to the state, but it's also rapidly increase the housing prices and that's for both um buying houses and also rental properties so i would love to have um, teachers be able to have higher wages so then they can go and buy their homes or rent homes where they'd like to be in their own neighborhoods um and that's getting a bit tricky with these salaries that are actually lowering as the cost of living increases Okay, so we've got a couple of minutes left here. Let's let's talk the solution. Um, again, the the problem is it's harder for these teachers to afford housing. Um, the school district steps forward and says, "Well, look, we can we can uh, help with with housing, but the problem, as you explained it, is that can unfortunately tie them to housing. Perhaps if they if they want to uh, find a different employment opportunity, they're still tied to their housing, maybe at risk of losing it. What's the most equitable solution, or the the one that that solves the greatest number of problems in in your mind? Okay, well, I think there's there's three solutions out there. So let me go through the poorer ones first. Um, so the first solution would be school districts to provide this managed housing. Um, and it's not a quick fix. In almost every case, the housing has to be built from the ground up or buildings need to be converted. So it's an expensive process and it's an ongoing expense because the buildings have to be staffed and maintained. And it doesn't allow teachers the choice to choose where they wanna live. The other solution is having federal wage mandates and a Florida Congresswoman, um, Congresswoman Frederica Wilson proposed having a minimum public school teacher salary of $60,000. But this minimum wage eventually will hurt teachers because the public schools who are already restricted budgetarily are going to have to increase their wages once it's mandated federally. And they're gonna respond by cutting back on resources and cutting back on employees. So I think the most viable solution here is to advocate for local wage increases. And so you're gonna have to go down to the voters by the school district. So I think wages need to be set at each school district. So the rates make sense for that particular cost of living. Um, and then those teachers would have the money directly in their pockets so they can make decisions on how they want to spend. And they can also use that money to generate wealth through their own housing. Well, is is the legislature amenable to, to these uh, types of reforms? I, I assume that's where this message is going to have to get through for action to, to take place. 
Yeah, so there is talk right now in the Florida State Legislature. Um, I believe Governor DeSantis is trying to set a minimum of 47,000. I think that's in the works right now. Um, but I don't think it should be statewide. It definitely needs to be local because in areas like Miami and Orlando, it's going to be much more expensive than in areas like Jacksonville to live. So it definitely needs to be a local solution. All right. We are talking with Sophia Hamilton. She is a Young Voices contributor. Sophia, for people who uh, want to follow your work or perhaps follow you on social media, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, you can definitely follow me on Twitter at Sophie Hamilton, S-O-F-I-E Hamilton. And I give constant updates about my work and you can read along. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices. It's it's an all-new crew today, and we are happy to welcome Benjamin Koshpin to, uh, to the program. Benjamin is a Young Voices contributor, and I'm going to ask you, Benjamin, if you wouldn't mind, um, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Fill in some of the blanks about uh, who you are and what you do. Of course. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. So my name is Benjamin Koshman. I'm a senior account executive at a bipartisan public affairs firm in Washington, D.C. called Vox Solutions. I work for a number of trade associations and company, but, uh, companies, but I'm specifically passionate about energy and the environment. And I'm a huge advocate for nuclear energy in particular which is what I focus the majority of my opinion pieces on, like the one I will be discussing today. Yeah, this is from International Policy Digest. And I have to admit, I'm feeling kind of encouraged. Now, I grew up in the 80s, so right after Three Mile Island, and there was a there was a very strong no-nukes you know, vibe through the 80s. But it seems like the, the prospect of affordable nuclear power is getting closer and closer to a reality. Talk to me about some of the developments that are making that possible, and then let's talk about uh, the U.S. and Japan uh, agreeing to, to start building next-generation reactors together. Of course. So, the technological advancements, like you mentioned, from the 80s till now in nuclear have been, uh, there, there's been a multitude, both in safety and efficiency. One of the technologies I'm most excited about that uh, we'll hopefully see deployed within uh, the next couple of years are small modular reactors, otherwise known as SMRs. So these are mini reactors that you can build in a factory rather than on site and ship to their eventual location. Uh, they provide a smaller, a smaller power output, but at a much more efficient rate. And because of the advanced technologies used, they are far safer than any reactors previously made. Now, the United States has a number of different companies. Uh, TerraPower, for example, which is one of the companies uh, fu uh, funded by Bill Gates, NuScale, X Energy, just to name a few. But we are not the only ones producing these reactors. So, as a, as you mentioned. One of the agreements that we made with Japan uh, as part of the um, uh, Japanese uh, prime minister's visit to the United States was to collaborate on small modular reactors. We are doing this because we need to kick our nuclear industry into high gear in order to compete with similar offerings from China and Russia. 
So yeah, I now I didn't realize China and Russia were such players in terms of of exporting uh, you know nuclear technology. Uh, is this? Well, of course, I I don't I don't follow this as closely as you do, but I I just hadn't realized that uh, that they were had had found a place on the world stage such as they have. Yes, and it is largely because of their ability to undercut the offers made by U.S. and allied countries. And the primary reason for this is because of our membership within the OECD. So the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, of which the United States and other nuclear reactor producing allies in France, the United Kingdom, Canada, and South Korea are members of, are bound by export guidelines. So these export guidelines entail minimum interest rates, mandatory loan repayment terms, rules that basically say you can't offer a gratuitously low interest rate or sort of a blank check deal to undercut uh, another OECD member. Russia and China, however, are not part of the OECD and are thus not bound by these guidelines. So they can offer zero interest rate or even what's called a BOO model, a build, own, operate, where they will build, operate, own, and assume all the costs of a nuclear reactor in exchange for an obviously very large soft power stake in the recipient country. So the United States is working on uh, developing and financing reactors in foreign countries, but as it stands, Russia is the leading exporter of nuclear reactors. They're building 10 reactors in foreign countries right now, including wow. the first build down operate nuclear plant in the world in Turkey. And it makes your head spin when you think that Turkey is a NATO member and that we are likely supplying them with F-16s. And also, Russia is about to supply nearly 10% of Turkey's total energy output once this BOO nuclear plant is completed. Okay, so that leads me to, to wonder um, if if an outside country like Russia or China has that kind of influence on a, a nation's energy infrastructure or energy supply, that seems like it would give them a place at the table, like it or not, you know, when it comes to, to helping to shape policy. Now, am I paranoid for thinking that way, or is that just kind of the way the world works? I'm not paranoid at all. In fact, this is something that Russia and China have already been doing. Um, for example, China's Belt and Road Initiative uh, through infrastructure loans uh, across not only um, developing countries um, in Africa and Southeast Asia, but European countries as well, where China will offer them a massive loan and essentially assume airports, railroads, uh, seaports as collateral for the loan. Um, for Russia, it's just another version of their pipeline politics in Europe that fuels their aggression um, towards foreign countries like Ukraine and Georgia on their borders. So this is just another tool in their uh, uh, in their hegemonic expansions uh, into their sphere and, and try to expand their spheres of influence. So absolutely not paranoid to be worried about it at all. Okay, so let's let's turn it back now to to the U.S. and its allies. What's the best move that they can do in terms of uh, not only you know uh, be, being stronger players in that nuclear technology market, but also uh, preventing encroachment on on the uh, sovereignty of other countries? Of course. So 
we have to look at this as a team effort. The United States can't go at this alone, especially because we are competing with state-run nuclear enterprises that allow for the government itself to backstop the entirety of the loan. We have private companies that are supported by the government, but we simply can't compete on a dollar-to-dollar basis. So cooperation, one, with our allies, like the, like the relationship, the cooperation with Japan that you mentioned, and two, a mutual agreement to remove some of the restrictive guidelines that the OECD uh, puts upon reactor exports. These can allow us to compete one-to-one with Russian and Chinese reactors. So by doubling down on our partnerships with our allies, putting more money towards these advanced reactors that are more efficient and safer than anything that China and Russia can offer, and making it easier to offer competitive financing and loan deals will allow us to budge out Russia and China and uh, give genuinely more appealing offers to these developing countries. Benjamin, talk to me about uh, what uh, conflict, if any, this creates within, for instance, our own government. Uh, I'm, I, I can't imagine that there's there's unanimous agreement on all sides of the aisle, you know, in the U.S. government as far as how this problem should be approached. Um, are, are we seeing, you know, some contention there as far as the, the best way to handle this? So you are. Um, I think one of the big issues is which energy sources should we prioritize? So, for example, under the uh, Export-Import Bank, there is a uh, China and Transformational Exports Program that uh, identifies key areas of export of which the government will take a uh, an increased role in supporting. Uh, so this includes uh, advanced technology, renewables, uh, manufacturing for chips, but nuclear energy isn't included. So you do have pieces of, of legislation, for example, the International Nuclear Energy Act proposed by uh, Senators Jane Risch from Idaho and Joe Manchin from West Virginia that would add nuclear energy to um the uh, uh, this export program. But by and large, I do think that there is a lot of potential for bipartisan support and agreement for prioritizing nuclear energy exports. Well, that's exciting. I mean, on the stand from the standpoint that uh, maybe there's going to finally be some some movement forward in terms of um, more readily available nuclear energy. Um, just out of curiosity, we've only got about thirty seconds left here. Uh, the environmental groups does this uh, does this cause them heartburn? Are they on board with it? Is it clean energy to them? <laughs> I, I can't speak on behalf of the environmental groups, but it should be clean energy because it burns zero carbon, and ultimately, it's the only way that we're going to reach our uh, emissions reductions goals by their proposed timelines. Uh, th- there's absolutely no other way that we can do it, frankly. So I think that groups like Sierra Club and Greenpeace need to get on board because nuclear is not only reliable and affordable, but it's clean. Here, here. We're talking with Benjamin Koshpin. He is a Young Voices contributor. And Benjamin, for people who wish to follow your work, where can they find your articles? Where can they follow you on social media? Of course. So you can follow me on Twitter at Ben Koshpin. And my last name is spelled K-H-O-S-H-B as in boy, I-N. So that's Ben Koshpin. 